Father, we're grateful for a chance to gather as a body. We're grateful for this book of Colossians. Father, for Paul's desire and love for these people, even though he had never met them. And Lord, for our opportunity to step back and examine it and to look. Father, I pray that the things that we learn and are reminded of, Lord, would just continue to give us strength to run the race that you've laid out before us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, my friends. I'm Jim, one of the pastors, and we have all heard the expression, practice makes perfect. Maybe not you who are really young, but me as old, I've heard that multiple times. And some might cringe, but it is true. We develop muscle memory and uh, memory, which sometimes is very good for us and sometimes is a hindrance. And I read stories this week uh, of what Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and many of the golfers do to practice. And uh, I was very impressed, but I wasn't an athlete, don't like golf. So uh, the one thing I did learn from reading about those guys was uh, the words targeted discipline came to mind at what these athletes do. Everything they did from early in the morning till their games or practice time was all uh, focused on developing skills, strength, and muscle memory so that they could be the best athlete possible. Well, I want to share with you um, a personal experience and a targeted illustration. And because I was a sailor and I was in the Coast Guard and the Navy for many years, mine come from living and ultimately surviving on a ship in the worst of circumstances. So that's my go-to. So ships go through a cycle uh, of life, so to speak, and about once every 18 months, they go through a, a drills and inspection that determines if they're battle-worthy or not. The last and most complicated of the drill uh, culminates in what's called a mass conflagration, okay? Even the word conflagration, I had to look it up twice. I'm like, that's the word, okay. Uh, <laughs> it means a big problem. And um, the drill comes at the end of a week of underway time where the ship has demonstrated its ability to do its mission uh, and primarily at night because it's very hard to see. So helo launches, um, doing um, the ship I was on, we used to carry Marines with hovercraft underneath us. So we would launch hovercraft at midnight and 2 a.m. And so all these rhythms happen. On Thursday, the ship returns to port it goes to the pier and the crew is held on board till sometime Friday night. And during that period, we go, we, we call it steaming at the pier. The plant is up, which is all the, all the engines, and we maintain what we would do at sea. So sometime during that night, battle stations is called, everybody goes to their battle stations, and within the ship, the, to maintain watertight integrity, um, all the hatches are closed, so if you move anywhere in that ship, you're unscrewing things, and they call them head knockers, because a lot of times you're running, you climb a ladder, and you forget that this hatch is closed, and it's like, I, have, I still have bumps on my head from hitting those things. You stand up and you go, oh, whoa, okay. So, um, so that's what we do. Sometime near the end of the drill comes the mass conflagration, and it's declared through the announcement that a missile has been fired at the ship. It's inbound and it's gonna impact the ship because the Sea Whiz, this rapid fire device on a ship, was unable to knock it down. 
And as it comes by, they go 60 seconds impact, 30 seconds impact, impact. They tell you where it happened or where it was supposedly hit, all simulated. And that area is now, anybody in that area is considered dead or unable to do anything. So they seal the whole part of that ship off. So now you can't go through that part to get wherever else you got to go. Fire parties, rescue teams are deployed to the decks where the hit occurred. Damage control parties come and they're deployed to attempt to keep the ship from, from um, uh, well, to keep the ship moving and to mitigate any flooding or damage that, and that could occur. Soon it's announced on the interior income, uh, intercom of the ship that all attempts to salvage the ship have failed and the crew is, is to get ready to abandon ship. As the ship's chaplain, I was assigned to the sick bay where wounded were brought for care. And when the abandoned ship uh, announcement is made, the wounded are stretchered and a plan to evacuate is executed. So next on board that ship, they simulate uh, loss of power. So they turn all the lights off inside of a ship that's basically gray or really poor pastel colors. And, um, and then they pump smoke through the ship. So not only is it dark, you couldn't see if you wanted to, now you have this smoke floating through the ship. Um, and so when you leave the sick bay, in my case, the light from our flashlight immediately disappears in the smoke. So you turn it on and you're like, you know, here's my hand, but that's all I can see. When you're walking with somebody, you can't uh, tell he's behind you unless you hear him walking or talking. And what we do know is on the sick bay, I knew that, 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 that the sick bay was halfway in the middle of the ship. It was two decks below the main and, and the frame number was 320. I knew that 12 frames away going to the stern through two hatches was an escape hatch where we could get into and we would climb 15, 16 feet, pop the hatch on the top deck and come out and we'd be on the main deck. So that's what we would do and we would begin to move. For the wounded, we would attempt to get them up ladders that are much easier to carry stretchers, but if necessary, we would set up a pulley system in that shaft and be able to just, you leave him in the stretcher and you just pull him up to the top, quite the ride. I never volunteered for that one, so. Uh, <laughs> um, and I wanna tell you that the way we were, and at least in that case, able to accomplish this and do it well in a set amount of times, is, is that when a sailor comes aboard a ship, every crew member, every crew member gets a PQS, Personal Qualification Standards Booklet, and your first responsibility is to spend the next two weeks going from the bow to the stern, from the flying bridge, which is way above the deck, to the keel, and learn the ship. Spaces where things are, how you get here, how you get there. And they, the sailors, visit these locations. They memorize how to move through the ship. And they know where their battle station will be assigned. And they learn their responsibility and the practice so that it could be accomplished in pitch black and be successful. They, the young sailors and even the old sailor when I was there, we were sent to seek and to set our minds on important locations and responsibilities inside that ship which would not only save our own life but the lives of others. So we have a short passage this morning, but it's pivotal in the book of Colossians because it's moving us from doctrine in, in uh, chapters one and two, where Paul spent a lot of time def uh, 
defining and telling these Colossian Christians who they were in Christ. Death to life is a theme that just, I don't know, I didn't count those words, but I'm like, death to life, death to life. You got this? Death to life. Death to life is what he talks about. Not only there, but in many of his, uh, of his books. And then in chapter 3, the first four verses we're going to look at are a close to, um, to what uh, Paul has taught in verses, uh, in chapters 1 and 2. So um, let me give you the two points today. There's only four verses, so there could be no more than two points. Trust me. I, in fact, I was going for one, but I, it didn't really work. So, uh, so, so there's two things we're going to look, look at today, and they'll come up on the screen is the diligence required in the Christian life is found in verses 1 and 2, okay? So we're going to look at the diligence required in the Christian life, and then we're going to look in verses 3 and 4, the motivation which is, as Paul has said multiple times in the opening verses, because Jesus has saved your life. Bottom line. I don't, we can talk about um, all the fine things, but you were dead and now you're alive. Pretty simple concept. Without Jesus, you were dead. With Jesus, you are alive. And we'll see today in, in a couple different ways that that applies. So one of the things I want to talk about really quickly is the Divine Human Cooperative, and that will pop up. Uh, you will not find this in a theology book. You're not going to find this in a, um, you know, I, you can search for it online, but you're not going to see it. And as soon as it comes up, I'll read it to you. But I'll explain it as I go down. The idea is this, that, that Jesus, God, the divine, has saved us, has done a work in our life that could never be accomplished by us. So that's the divine portion. Oh, yeah, here we go. God has given us the ability through Christ's work in our life, divine action, to allow us to work through the Holy Spirit in our Christian growth, which is human action. So it's the, it's the what I call and what one of my professors years ago in seminary called the divine human cooperative. I'll give you a couple. Oh, the verses are down there. But let me read you a couple of verses from other of Paul's books. One is Philippians 2. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So again, work out your own salvation. <laughs> Philippians 3, 14, Paul says this, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, and if, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. And the last one there is 2 Peter. Um, so it's good to see Peter and Paul agree on the same subject. Uh, Peter says this, and this is a large passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I've just taken verses out to crunch it as much as I can. So in 2 Peter 1, Peter says this, His divine power has granted us all things so that through them you have become partakers of the divine nature. Now that's worth some time, studying what that means as we partake in the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful, of sinful desires, for this very reason, Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly, brotherly love, and love, for if these qualities are yours 
and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It's hard to imagine that it's possible to get lost in the Christian life, but it certainly seems to be the case in Peter's statement, and I would say it's certainly the case in Jim Ellis's life as an early believer. You pursue, you pursue, you pursue, and then I'll say you choose to move off course, and then you forget. And it's only the divine action of God going, come on, come on back. So he closes this, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to conform your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will, you will be richly provided for as an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at Colossians 3, 1, 1 through 4, and let's look at verse 1. Paul says, if then you have been raised, if you write in your Bible, which I highly recommend, you could put the word co-resurrected someplace next to that statement. Because Paul is saying, if you have been raised, you have been co-resurrected with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the God at the right hand of God. This verse, I believe, reveals the posture of our diligence, the posture of our diligence, which is to seek. The, the idea behind the word is a constant striving, pressing into the things above. Paul is saying to the church of Colossae, believers, you have been raised with Christ, so let's not forget that. Let me remind you of a couple couple of Paul's statement from like Colossians 1, 21 to 23, Paul says this, and you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled you, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the God, hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed. So Paul says, that's what you were. This is what you are. And in Colossians 2, 6, and 7, we see really an important principle. Paul says, the pursuit of faith is the evidence of salvation. In Colossians 2, 6, and 7, Paul says this, therefore, as you receive Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built, and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, uh, taught abounding in thanksgiving. So Paul assumes that the answer to his statement where he says, um, if then, again, not a question, but a statement to them, you've been raised with Christ, then, then you need to seek these things. And his assumption is, yeah, you have been, you've been co-resurrected. And so he says, in verse 1 and 2, first to seek, and then verse 2 to set. The word translated seek, let me give you a little more on that, that means to desire and strive. It's a lifetime commitment. It is to see one's interest as centered in Christ, that one's attitudes, ambitions, and whole outlook are molded by Christ's relationship to us. And that's one's allegiance to Christ takes precedence over any, any other allegiance. And it's an important fact for us to get a hold of and to remain with for a long, long time. 
Paul is telling, us things, is telling us in cooperation with the work of the Holy Spirit, we need to seek and set our attention, our minds on things above, and in this verse where Christ is seated. Both of these words, I will say, are present, here we go, present tense imperatives, okay? These are like, Paul's like, come on guys, I'm telling you, there is no choice. And these are a lifetime quest for us. And he points out in verse 4, as we'll see, there is a certain reward for us as we do that. How we think is how we behave. Emotions and circumstances exert a great deal of pressure on us that requires us to remain focused on Jesus at all times. Our posture then is to seek that continuous action for a lifetime, seeking to obtain, focusing on the things above where Christ is seated. We are fortunate in our lifetime to have this whole book because now we can really have a good time exploring what it means to uh, seek the things that, that are above. And the focus in verse 1 is they're exploring, they're seeking, is the focus on Christ being seated at the right hand of the throne of God and what it means. I would love to have been with the Colossi Church and go, what do you guys know that to me? Because the book of Hebrews isn't written. I mean, they got, they got the scroll. <laughs> what does it mean to them to think that Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God? It could have been that simple yet profound statement that they go, well, this is what we think. Paul said this is true, so we're going to focus on that in our Christian's, Christian life. It's interesting that Jesus in Matthew 7 says this desire to seek will bring results. In Matthew 7, 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the, to the one who knocks, it will be opened. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Lord, help me understand. Lord, I'm seeking the things that are above. Make it clearer to me every time I spend time in your word and as we, and, and as we walk with him. Verse 2 says this, set your minds on things that are above, repeated theme, not on the things that are on earth. So Paul takes this thought a little different direction. So verse 1 speaks of the posture diligence requires, which is to seek. Verse 2, I think, speaks of our practice which is set our minds on the things above that seeking has revealed. There is a distinction in the two words. If you uh, use an NIV, which I do a lot, they translate the word the same, set and set. But it is, it is better to be understood that um, the second, again, is a present imperative, so really involves this concept of continuous action but this word includes a sense that what you have learned as you seek, they, those things need to be, that's where we need to set our mind on. Um, that as we look, as we learn, that those become, ah, I've learned this about Jesus, so now I'm going to set my mind on that. Oh, I've learned this about my faith. I'm going to set my mind on that. Uh, what we do with what we find applies to our growth as believers uh, because, again, we understand thoughts influence behavior. Lightfoot, a Greek scholar, says this, you must 
not only seek heaven, you must also think heaven. So the idea of seeking, yes, but literally to set your mind on things above is to give such things a, such a large place in your thought life, seeing to it that the bent of our inner selves, our inner man, the governing tendency of who we are and our, and our thought thoughts will always look to God. What is pure and lovely, Paul says, think on these things. So as we begin, uh, as we seek those things that are above, we will begin to see things and people in the light of biblical uh, worldview uh, and eternity. We will see our world and our place in it uh, against the background of what it means to be a believer. It will help bring clarity to, to who we are. And I believe, as I said earlier, that there is a progression in Paul's exhortations. Seek continually, and as you learn principles, foundational truths, important to your life and family, you set your mind on these things. And I would say we pass them on to one another, we share them, which, revolt, which result in a profitable, profitable spiritual action. Our practice is to set the important things we learn from what we are, uh, and that we learn from what we're seeking, and then identify those things that deserve our good, our good work. The mind is a great place of understanding where attitudes and actions find their basis. And as you seek, you set, as you set, you see more things to seek and understand better. I'm gonna get uh, our slide man to put up uh, my last slide. And I'm, the word is tree. Oh, he, man, he is on it. So let me explain it this way. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that was impressive. Anyway, <laughs> so as we seek, we, be, we begin to determine things that we need to set our minds on, okay? And, and I will say this, and I hope this is true in your life, that, that when you, you have a few books that you like to read, maybe yearly or every other year, and if you do that, always use a different color pen or pencil, okay? So as you, you read the book, go, oh, I'll read that next year, then get a different pen, pencil, and you're going to have maybe a dozen colors in there eventually. And you'll be so interested to see, wow, and put a date next to it. This was 19, whatever. Um, oh, I shouldn't say 19. <laughs> Man, I'm dating myself. Woo. Yeah. Let's say 20, whatever. <laughs> uh, so in 2010, yeah, I, I have lived that long. Anyway, <laughs> this is what I was seeing. This is what the Lord, as I sought him, revealed to me. And then in 2018, yoo anyway, <laughs> as I was seeking the Lord, this is what I set my mind on. And we see that progression. So simple little chart. I designed this, so that's why it's that way. Um, so we seek, we set, we set, we seek, we seek, we set. My only, my illustration was, was this my dad? I was born on the East Coast, and um, and one day my dad was called to take down a tree that was massive, probably nine feet across the butt. So two of us, we could get our hands around it. We had a two-man chainsaw. There aren't many of them, but it's it's a huge chainsaw. Because I'm the young guy, I get it's called the beaver tail. It's the end that you can pull. The guy with the engine, it's huge, but he just kind of sits there and you work it around the butt of the tree. So we're halfway through the tree. And all of a sudden, the chain splits, and sparks come flying out of the tree. 
So not a good, not a good time. Because in 1970, I know that's old, that chain was worth about two grand. So, I mean, it was, it was not a good day. And by looking at my dad's face, <laughs> he was not pleased. So we spent the rest of the day cutting that tree apart with much uh, smaller chainsaws until we got to the center of the tree. And in the center of that tree, what caused the, uh, ch uh, the uh, chain to break was a cannonball. <laughs> and I, where I was born and raised... George Washington and fighting, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, American Revolutionary War, the Battle of Springfield occurred in June 23rd, 1780, and that cannonball hit the bottom of this elm tree and lodged in the base. And for the next 100, I did that, I checked this out, 180 years it grew around, this, around the cannonball. And the cannonball is in the, if you go to Springfield, New Jersey, which we'll never do, the cannonball is in this little museum. But... My point is this, that when you look at the butt of that tree and begin to examine it, you're like ring upon ring upon ring. And you can tell in a tree when it's been a good year because the ring is much larger. When there's drought, the ring is very tiny. You can tell when there's been bad winds when the tree is young because as it twists the butt and it lives, it has pops. They call them bird's eyes on the, on the ring of the tree. My point, again, as you seek and set, the more you do that, the stronger your faith becomes. It just begins to grow and to set and grow and to set. And when things come and they, you know, really push on the head on the top of the tree, you might lose a few limbs, but your faith will remain constant because you have sought and you have set your mind on the things that are above and it has, it has grown you in a great, great deal. Um, let me continue. So, Paul doesn't want the church to be uh, focused on earthly things. And again, not all earthly things are bad, but at a minimum, they can be a distraction from the life of faith. Um, repeated rhythms of seeking and setting become habits of the mind that we do all the time. So that when the wind blows or whatever's happening in your life, you do not fall apart. Why? Because I have sought the Lord, I had set my heart, my, my thoughts on the principles of the word, so when it comes, I know where I'm going. I have completed my personal qualification standards, so to speak, looking at, at the book. So what Seeking and Setting brings uh, are, is growth, and I have two examples to share from our church. So, and I've asked permission of the uh, one person. Her name is Jamie Taron. She's not here, are you, James? Nope. I call her Jamesy. Anyway, she's not here. So hopefully second service. So Jamesy came to our RC six years ago. We had just started. She was 19 years old. She was a second year student at GCC. She went over to uh, Grand Canyon, finished her bachelor's, and then last year graduated, graduated with her doctor of physical therapy. And we have watched her faith grow over the years in a marvelous way. We've had Bible studies. We've talked. We've met for coffee. And Jamie is getting ready to travel, it looks like, as a, as a physical therapist. So she's talking to companies so she can go do 90 days in some exotic place like Cleveland, Ohio. Anyway, but I don't know. But <laughs> not in the winter. But um, so that's what her goal is. And so as she started to think about this, she called me and she said, uh, she said, Jimbo, she goes, I, I need to grow I need something to take with me. I need, to, I need to be able to know what a good church is. I'm like, ka-ching. Uh, I need to know what I need. 
I mean, she's grown a lot. And so, again, you know me well enough. For those of you who know me, we go to books right away. Bing. So the first book I gave her was called Know the Truth by Bruce Milne. Great book on doctrine. About this big, I think 10 chapters. Gave it to her. We're going to meet in two weeks. And I was getting the word from other members of the RC. It ain't going well. Do you know they have the word transubstantiation in that book? They have, you know, they have ont uh, yeah, ontology. Whoa. And I'm thinking, well, come on, girl. You just got a doctorate in physical therapy. You learned all these new terms. So then I found a book. Uh, Scott recommended this to me called Everybody's a Theologian by, uh, by, by R.C. That's going much better, I must say. So, <laughs> But what intrigued me and what encouraged me was she wants to know more. So she wants to continue to seek and set so now when she leaves this church for a time, when she leaves the RC, she'll know what to, do, what to do, where to go, and what to look for. And I thought that was super, super cool. The other illustration I thought it was Easter Sunday. Uh, we baptized, um, I don't know how many, I forget that part, but they were all 16 and under, okay, which uh, typically we go to 12, and then, we, and then we really talk to the kids, and I got a chance to interview every one of them, and I will... And I think I can say this pretty confidently, that every one of those, 16 and under, were baptized, of course, because the divine, God had done a work in their lives, but the human cooperative part came from their parents. Okay? The reason why they understand baptism, the reason why they wanted to come up here and go in that tank is because it had been discussed. Their parents had talked about what it meant to be baptized what their faith meant. The kids had seen it lived before them all this time. So baptism, as it was explained, become, became a very natural thing to do. Of course I want to get that baptized. I want to identify with that. So I, I just thought about this concept in verse, verses 1 and 2 about seeking and setting. I mean, there's, I think, a good personal illustration from Jamie and then one of baptism in the church because I believe those uh, I can't call them children because that, that would insult some, but uh, <laughs> the teen and the rest, uh, <laughs> uh, I think they were there because of the divine, no doubt, and the human cooperative of their parents instilling and solidifying their faith. So the last two verses, Paul says, um, for if you have died with Christ, if you for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ who is your life, appears, and then you will also appear with him in glory. Um, and this morning, as I was walking from my car to here, it, it hit me that Paul has given us, even in this verse, something to seek and set our minds on. And, the, and, and what it is is, again, it's a repetitive thought. You have died. Your life is hidden. Now, there's a new concept, I think, to the Church of Colossae. What does that mean? My life is hidden with Christ and God. And then, Paul, you're telling me that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then I'll also appear with him in glory. So that, I would hope, to the church gave them, oh, we got to learn more about that. We need to learn what it means, what Paul has said, what it means to us. So we know that Paul has reinforced this concept of death to life <laughs> through one and two. Um, again, Paul talks, you, you died with Christ in 2.20. And that was followed by resurrection with Jesus in 3.1. And so our lives indeed are now hidden with Christ and God. This suggests that a believer's life is secure, I think. Because this concept of already, not yet, you've heard us talk about that some, is, is what's going on here. 
Hidden means we are safe with God. And it also speaks of a hidden, invisible spiritual realm, which one day will be a reality. One day when Jesus returns, we will fully understand as we are back here with him. Presently, our connection with God and Christ is a matter of inner experience, enjoyed with others of faith, but one day it will come to full and an open manifestation. And if you think the RC thing last night was a party, you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, going to be a lot of neat folks we haven't seen for a long time, I believe. So, so listen to Paul's language. He says, who, I'm sorry, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's another concept that deserves our study. Christ, who is my life? Christ is my life. And that's a massive concept that we need to understand better and better and better as we go from the 1900s to the 20s. Because <laughs> um, I am that old. But um, So we need to understand that, yes, that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. Again, the contrast of the way Paul describes the Colossi believers in chapter 2 is amazing. He said, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against it, us and its legal demands. Thus he set, aside, he set it aside by nailing it to the cross. Again, death to life. I, it's a theme that is, permeates this whole book. And it's our motivation to seek and to say, because we were once dead, and we know that, and now we are hidden with the Lord, and we're told by Paul to live as if we have been brought from death to life. Peter says, look, at, I mean, we get to participate in the divine nature even now. That's worth another study. Seek and set that. What does it mean to live in the divine nature today? Peter says we do in some ways, so that's worth some study. So again, we know what it is to be alive. We are no longer hidden from God as Adam and Eve were when they hid in Genesis 3. Boom, they are gone. And the Lord's walking in the garden and go, hey, where are you? You've never done this before. Oh, you didn't. You did and again, apart from Christ, we have been hidden from God. Now we are hidden with Christ in God. And having this fact and understanding this better, I think, gives us the confidence to live today the way Paul told Timothy. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, Timothy, pursue, fight the good fight of faith, and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Why? Because of this fact. You were dead, you're alive, seek and set, because one day we will be back together. In the meantime, live like you've been resurrected. Live well and do well on behalf of the Lord. Closing thought, if we are hidden with Christ there and will be revealed then, we cannot help but look more like Christ here and now. Paul is going to develop this through the rest of the chapter where he pens the portrait of a heavenly-minded person. Consider just some of these statements. They, 
put to death all that dishonors God and demeans others. They dress themselves in the heavenly clothing of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In a society of accusations and recriminations, they speak otherworldly language of forgiveness. They walk under the reign of divine peace, which has established its throne in their hearts. They speak and sing with harmony of gratitude and grace. In every relationship, in every word, in every deed, they seek to show the glory of Jesus Christ. 